Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, you can also go to johnwarrenmedia.com where you can contact us through the contact tab. You can also email me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Our guest today, our conversation today is with Joe Dallas. Joe is an author and biblical counselor who has ministered to people dealing with relational and sexual issues for over 30 years. He's authored nine books. I've read several of them. He's the founder of Cloudfire Ministries in Southern California. His weekly podcast, Christians in a Cancel Culture, is based on his latest book by the same title, Christians in a Cancel Culture. Joe's an elder with Mesa Church of Irvine, California, and he and his wife, Renee, live in Orange County. Joe and I have several mutual friends. We were just reminiscing about whether or not we've actually been in the same room together. I believe we have over the course of the years a couple of times, but I want to say it this way. I often, to be kind to guests, talk about the fact that every guest is special because they're taking their busy time, time out of their schedule to be here. Well, this one is a favorite because Joe's on a short list of people who have, whose ministry has really meant a lot to me, to my family, to people I know, and I'll uh, be glad to explain that as we go forward. But Joe, I want to welcome you to Relentless Truth. It is indeed an honor to have you here. John, thank you. It's a pleasure being here, and I sure appreciate you thinking of me. Well, I want you to tell your story, if you would, and I have, I've heard your story, first of all, I've heard your story from others along the way, and I first heard mm-hmm. about you, Joe, in the context of, oh, you've got to meet Joe Dallas, because you're a powerful voice in the community of ministries at large, but you've got a couple of very specific lanes that I want people to become familiar with, especially in the context of your book and your podcast. I want you to talk about those things as well. But I'm wondering if you would just take a few minutes and talk about who Joe Dallas is, maybe your upbringing and something of your story, even though we're in this podcast format. I want the Relentless Truth listener to know who you are, if you would. Sure, John. I'm one of many people who struggled silently with homosexuality within the church. We traditionally think of the whole LGBTQ issue as something existing in the secular culture, but not directly within the walls of the church. But it's been true from the beginning that there have been believers who quietly wrestle at least with homosexual temptations. As I did, I was born again at age 16 at the height of what we now call the Jesus movement. I thought that being born again would remove all of my wayward sexual desires. I think that was because of a misunderstanding of what the struggle between the flesh and the spirit is for the believer. And because this was not talked about, I got to say, when I was young, John, nobody was doing what you and I are doing today. We did not talk about this openly in Christian circles. 
And because of that, I thought I was probably the only one who had been saved out of that sin. And I thought I was the only one in the body of Christ who wrestled with temptation towards that sin. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I never, never confessed those temptations to anyone. After about seven years, I got sick of just pushing them down. I lived a sanctified life, but I still was waiting and hoping that all of these feelings would just go away. When they didn't, I decided to heck with it. I'm going to give myself permission to come out of the closet. And that's when I became a very committed gay activist for about six years. In fact, I uh, eventually joined and came on staff with what we would now call a gay-affirming church back in the late 1970s and the early 80s. So I was very, very militant about it in those days and very committed to the identity of a gay Christian man. And yet I could never fully convince myself that Scripture supported what I was doing. I relied more on experiential arguments and then some twisting of the Scripture as well. And uh, then finally, around the beginning of 1984, there was just a growing conviction. Two questions, actually, John, that just haunted me. I mean, really, I don't know if you ever saw that movie Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg, but I, I have. there was a scene where, where the ghost, Patrick, is haunting her day and night, singing to her and keeping her awake. Well, I had something like that going on with me. And the, the, two, the, the three questions I couldn't get away from. One, am I really in God's will? Two, does it matter? Three, if it does matter, what am I going to do about it? And those questions were relentless. You're talking about relentless truth. That's, that's what it was. And that finally brought me to a place of repentance in early January of 1984. When I repented, I had to transplant myself to another county because my entire network relationally was identified with the gay community. And so I needed to remove myself. Most of my relationships I lost kind of by default because you don't, you, you basically don't tell all your gay friends, hey, I've decided this is a sin. Right. And keep getting dinner invitations. That's not going to happen. So I, uh, I started at ground zero, got myself grounded in a good Bible believing church, found a good Christian counselor. And uh, with time, started branching out and making some new connections with that church and, and uh, becoming something completely new for me. i got to say, I was 29 years old at the time. I'm 67 now, so this was a while ago, but that was the first time in my life I ever felt like I was one of the guys. I experienced that for the first time, non-sexual, healthy, same-sex relationships. Now, every story is unique. There are men who repent of homosexuality who have always felt like one of the guys. So, you know, my story is not the same as everybody else's. But for me, that was revolutionary. Learning to relate apart from sex was revolutionary for me, really. And then eventually I did meet a young woman who I fell very deeply in love with. And uh, we married in 1987. We've been married since then. We're coming up on our 35th year now. Uh, congratulations. Two, thank you. We've got two wonderful grown sons. And uh, she's now my partner in ministry as well as, as in life. So I'm not big on saying that they live happily ever after. We look at marriage as sort of like it's some sort of resolution. That's not true. Any married person would tell you that. And I, I'm not big on saying the proof of healing is marriage because it's not. However, right. I was never able to sustain a relationship with a man for more than six months. For heaven's sake, my wife and I courted for a year and a half before I even proposed, so that alone says something. And I think that for me, the miracle is not 
having become a family man. Um, it's not the decades-long marriage. It's the fact that my heart was changed from the heart of a rebel to the heart of a disciple. And believe me, for Joe Dallas to have the heart of a disciple, that's like saying Joe Dallas grew a third eyeball. I was not by nature a disciple. I was anything but. Well, John, and, did, uh, John, day, John, Warren, John Warren and a number of his friends are in that boat with you. Just, yeah, I, I guess so there's you know. a lot of that going around. I guess there's <laughs> a lot of that going around. Every time I hear somebody quote Paul that he says he's the chief of sinners, I think, I'm giving you a run for your money, buddy. I think you've got some competition, but I yep. guess we've all got our yeah, there, there's we've a, all got our stories. There's a prayer of confession that our church, uh, which has kind of a, a liturgical style, sort of a modified liturgical style, and it says in it, it says, I'm the worst sinner I know. I cringed uh-huh. when I prayed that at first, and now as I get older— I celebrate that line because, uh, and this, what we're doing right now is what I meant in the introduction when, when I said there's a beauty in this ministry, there's a transparency that you've always had about the impact of the, of the gospel on your life. And I just think that's helpful as you minister to others, but I'm wondering if you could continue your story and talk about how you got into ministry, because I've heard that story and kind of bring us up to date on on uh, what you've been doing all these years and where you are now. Yeah, I've had the honor of uh, walking alongside hundreds and hundreds of Christian men and women who were in the same position I was, John, since 1987 when my ministry started. But the whole thing was a fluke. Uh, I I decided oh sometime around 1985, 1986, while I was getting on my feet, that I wanted to become a licensed counselor. And uh, I found a Christian master's degree program that I applied for, and it was one that the state uh, uh, sanctioned through which you could get your master's degree and, and go for licensing as a therapist in the state of California, where I live. And uh, I wanted to do drug and alcohol rehab counseling. That's what was on my heart to do. There's a lot of that in my family and in my own life. I have a highly addictive personality, so I can appreciate that struggle. And uh, as I got to the point in my program where I had to find an internship, why nobody would take me. And I had good grades, good recommendations. I um, I started checking my deodorant, John. I mean, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. There was no reason for all these doors to close. Right. Finally, somebody said, well, there is one little church in your area that has a counseling center that deals with people who are, the clinical term for it was, ego-dystonic homosexuals, people who were saying, I'm gay, but I don't want to be. I don't want to give into this. What do I do? And I said, no way am I doing that. I told my supervisor, hey, I I had that in my own life. I'm engaged now. I put that behind me. I don't even want to think about it. I sure am not going to spend a career talking about it. And I really thought at the time, too, John, you know, like I said, by that time, Renee and I were pretty serious. And I thought, well, I, I there are not enough people who have that that I could ever make a living doing that kind of work. Mm. There are maybe 10 of us in the whole world who are Christians who have dealt with homosexuality and want help. But I finally accepted the internship because nobody else would take me. And then uh, a few months after I began, I only had like one or two counselors coming in that I worked with. And then we did a conference that we opened up to the church, had a lot of uh, speakers, including some from Exodus at the time, by Rogers, Andy Kaminsky, Jonathan Hunter. Those are names I'm sure you're familiar with. Yep. And uh, the turnout for that was, oh, I think about three or 400. 
And then we said we offer counseling if anybody wants help. Well, my client load, John, it went up to over 30 within two weeks. And that's when I started to think, good grief. My story is not as unusual as I thought it was. There is a whole untapped population within the body of Christ silently struggling with homosexual desire, addiction to pornography, sexual behavior that they're keeping in the dark and, and not bringing to light. This is, this is an area of ministry that nobody seems to be touching. And that's when it became clear to me, there it is, guy, go for it. And I, my, my wife and I, she was at the time my fiance, we prayed about it. And I thought, you know, it's going to be a very strange life if I pursue this. But I really think this is where I'm called. What do you think? And we prayed together. We talked it through. And we both felt probably the way people do when they feel called to the mission field. If you're not called, for heaven's sake, don't do it. Right. But if you are called, you know. And yeah. I thought, our kids will be okay. Our life will be okay. Let's go for it. And it has been... Just uh, like I said, it's been an incredible honor to be there for people who were at the same point I was when I said, okay, Lord, I get it. You don't want me to live this life, but what the heck am I supposed to do with my feelings, my identity, my way of relating? Where do I start? What do I do? That's, uh, th- those are the questions to this day plenty of Christian women and men have. And uh, like I said, it's, it's a real honor being there with them when they ask those questions. And did it occur to you then, Joe, and I, I haven't heard you talk about this, but I know the the impact your ministry has crosses over into, pun not intended, but, but crosses over into the ever straight heterosexual community because the principles you teach are all about the gospel and first of all, justification by faith and then walking by faith. And I, I don't yeah. I don't mean to demean the efficacy of the work that you've done in the homosexual community and transgender and all the rest in that community, but uh, I believe you've had uh, a material impact in, in the uh, heterosexual community. The, the community hasn't been tempted in that regard because the principles you've employed are biblical principles that, that are applicable to all of us. Well, funny you say that. Again, another fluke, but... John, if you hang out a shingle that says, I offer Christian counseling to people struggling with homosexuality, everybody and their brother thinks, well, if you can handle that, you can handle me. So from the beginning, I had <laughs> that's, plenty of men. That's, that's very similar I mean, to true. my first thought when I heard about your ministry, actually. So good. <laughs> yeah. No, that's what a lot of guys thought. So I, from the beginning, I've worked with plenty of men who have always been heterosexual, but who had gotten hooked into porn or adultery or promiscuity. And in fact, I, for years, taught a monthly seminar called Every Man's Battle yep. uh, under contract to New Life Treatment Center. And they had me doing that in states around the country. Every month, we'd get 60 to 80 guys or more that would show up, and we'd take six days to teach principles of sanctification and recovery and lay out a plan for men that they could adopt and apply to their own lives. But it was strictly heterosexually oriented. It was only, you know, there were men who came struggling with same-sex attractions. But like you said, sanctification is sanctification. Biblical principles are biblical principles. The flesh is the flesh, the spirit is the spirit. Ultimately, the, the problems we have are all branches that come from the same roots. We basically are dealing with deeply ingrained desires that would take us contrary to God's will if we allow them to. 
So part of, I, I think, one of the greatest challenges for the modern Christian man or woman is the challenge of being a good steward of their sexuality, of all that that entails. It's, uh, like I said, in the year 2022, that's one heck of a challenge. Exactly right. And talk about, if you would, how you talked about the initial impact starting the ministry in 1987, the 30, 30 people show up and you say, wow, there's one of the things I've recognized in my own life is you do have that moment where you say, I thought my story was peculiar. And the peculiar part of my story is that I thought I had a childhood conversion experience and it was based on, uh, you know, walking an aisle, praying a prayer, being baptized, joining a church. And I later had all kinds of doubts and struggled with assurance because I, I had relied on, as innocent as it sounded, I had relied on John's performance in that act of salvation rather than truly trusting in in who God is and understanding who God is, who man is, and how God relates to us through Christ. And I really didn't get it until much later. And so I realized later that as I started telling this story, and it's even been a trend on this podcast, that particularly men don't talk about these things very much. And as I talked about it more, I've realized in adulthood that lots of people have this experience. So you recognize that your experiences aren't necessarily unique. There is a market, if I can call it that, for for this ministry. Mm-hmm. And then it has grown over the years exponentially I be, from where I sit. Can you talk about that and, and what the current state of your ministry is and, and all the things that you're up to now? Yeah, uh, I mean, it began with just trying to be there as a biblical counselor. I, by the way, switched lanes midstream through my master's degree program because I realized that to be a clinical counselor, more and more I was going to have restrictions placed on me that I wasn't willing to accept. And so I, I operate now not as a licensed counselor, but as a pastoral counselor. And um, what I found was by offering biblical counseling, why just word of mouth grew and the Christian media was always interested in this kind of work because, first of all, it is an interesting story. It was kind of out of the mainstream. And it was very, I think, an area of real concern. So I started doing more and more Christian interviews and more secular interviews. I once had a leader tell me this issue flies on the wings of controversy, and I found that was true. Mm. So the more publicity that came, which I honestly did not ever speak out, the more uh, opportunities came for speaking, I eventually started ministering with Exodus International. I was actually their president for three years, 1990 to 1993, spoke at several of their conferences, and then had the opportunity to begin writing. In 1991, my first book, Desires and Conflict, was released, and that was written to help men dealing with same-sex attractions. I've written eight books since then. Uh, the one you just mentioned is my latest book, which came out in uh, 2021. And uh, there's also been a lot of opposition. The opposition has grown. And this is something I know you've seen firsthand too, John. It's, it's a lot like Nehemiah's building challenge. You start off to build. I mean, as, as I read Nehemiah, I don't see the guy wanting to go out and pick a fight. I see him wanting to rebuild. He's got a vision. He says, oh, my gosh, a place that Bacoli has now been basically decimated, the walls are crumbled, the gates are burned, the city's overstream with rubbish, let's rebuild. Okay, great. They go out to rebuild. But Israel's enemies find out about that, and it's like, no way are we going to let that happen. So they try intimidation tactics, they make threats, they try mockery, they try saying, oh, let's get together and talk about this. 
they play every game in the book to distract Nehemiah from his work. Finally, he, he, he basically realized, I can't just build. I also have to defend. Mm. So he and his workers started working with, as you know, a tool in one hand, a weapon in the other. So a lot of us, myself included, became apologists by default. I never set out to become an apologist, but I find that a lot of my work nowadays is taken up helping people articulate a defense of the biblical position on sexuality. And I think that for modern believers, this is one of our greatest challenges that we'll have to rise to. It will not be enough to just know where we stand. It even won't be enough to express or teach where we stand in the privacy of our own homes and churches. The culture is demanding that we also defend where we stand. And this is a challenge your average believer has to meet because your average believer is the mother who has a daughter come home from college saying, Mom, I'm a lesbian. You need to come to my wedding or I'll cut you off. Or the, the Christian friend who has a friend who says, I'm transitioning. If you don't call me, she, I'm going to cut off our relationship. Explain to me why you won't do that. So, you see, we're all kind of being put on the spot, and this is where we all will have to accept the challenge. Peter Gates, be ready to give an answer. Mm. These are the times. I really want you to, now that now that you mentioned that topic, and it really is addressed in your new book, Christians in a Cancel Culture, subtitle is Speaking with Truth and Grace in a Hostile World. Joe, talk, if you would, about that topic. I have about six intervening questions that I, I want to ask you uh, <laughs> uh, before we even okay. before we even get there. But jump to that and talk about the culture. You've talked a lot over the years, and I know we can't do all of this in a podcast format, but you've talked a lot about our post-truth world. About You've talked enough that I know you have a very clear, straightforward understanding of what postmodernism is and what our culture is all about today. But I see in the work I do with schools, Christian schools, K through pre-K through 12 schools all over the country, I see the, the phenomenon you just mentioned, the student returning from college or, or whatever it is. It has different, it plays out in different ways in different people's lives, but that is happening a lot. And I see another group of Christians who, who look and, and say, wow, I, I kind of want to be woke. I don't want to be canceled. What am I to do? Can you just... Speak to all of that, and I know your book speaks to it. It's called, again, Christians in a Cancel Culture. You can find it on Amazon and some other places that we'll talk about in a moment. But just talk about the subject that you cover in this book as it relates to maybe giving advice to this audience uh, that is uh, listening to us today. Sure. Look, John, we, we have a choice whether or not we're going to become woke. We may not have a choice as to whether or not we be canceled. But even if we are canceled, if my voice is canceled, if your voice is canceled, the truth is not going to be canceled. The Word of God has never been silenced. It never will be. So while on the one hand, I, I also don't want to be canceled, I hate the, the current trends we're seeing, I also don't want to let myself be intimidated by them. And, and when, when we talk about the current trends we're seeing, look, what is this if not a crusade, Okay. I think that we are in the middle of nothing short of a crusade. The whole, whether we call it cancel culture or the woke movement or the social justice movement, it's all basically the same thing. It is a social, well-orchestrated crusade, and now it's becoming more of a governmental crusade as well, to convert the infidels, 
we're the infidels, John. Any of us who are Bible-believing Christians who hold traditional orthodox views on abortion, social justice, homosexuality, transgender, or progressive Christianity, we are the infidels that the crusade is seeking to convert. Just like be converted. Just like Joe, I'm sorry to interrupt, but but we yeah. d- doesn't it remind you of the church at Rome when Paul wrote the epistle to them? The real Christians were, in fact, the atheists, were viewed as the infidels exactly. back then. See, now that's an excellent point. Because think about what got them in so much hot water. I've always felt, John, that they were not they were not in hot water just because they believed in Jesus. I think they were in hot water because they wouldn't swear allegiance to Rome. They wouldn't swear allegiance to Caesar. And they the, had and the an hundred and the hundred plus idols that, that the rest of Rome worshipped. Exactly. So I think it's a lot like I remember one of my favorite movies still is the Ten Commandments, the old Charlton Heston film. <laughs> and uh, they they portray Moses as having had a love affair with, with Ramsey's wife uh, before she was Ramsey's wife. And she, when he when he had his revelation of God's calling, she said to him, I don't care what God you worship, just let me worship you. She was basically saying, hey, it's okay for you to worship that God, but allow for other gods as well. You know, don't don't swear allegiance or exclusivity. This is the problem, John. Yep. We believe in exclusive truth. We believe there is one God, one way to God. Our beliefs about the human condition are offensive. We believe man is not inherently good. Man is inherently sinful. We do believe there is a place of eternal punishment. You know, so we believe there is one definition of marriage, and there is a standard of sexuality. Those standards, those biblically-based principles, those are the things getting us into hot water. You want to just say, I love Jesus. I don't think anybody even cares. But if you want to follow his teaching, now you're in trouble. However, remember what Jesus said himself. If anyone is ashamed of me and my word, of that person my father will be ashamed of. I will be ashamed of. So I think this is when we're we're having to face the fact that cancel culture is about converting or silencing us specifically when we speak, when we express, when we live out biblically-based positions. In most cases, we are not being silenced because we're trying to impose those positions on anybody. We are trying to live them and express them uh, primarily within our own churches and to our own people. Secondarily, yes, to the world, we do, I believe, have a prophetic responsibility to speak to the culture as opportunity allows by saying God, God does exist, and God has a specific viewpoint on this issue, and we should be allowed to do that. But I think that we are having a hard time as a church accepting the fact that we are not just living in a culture which celebrates diversity. We wouldn't be having these tensions if that was all that was happening. We're in a culture that is beginning to demand conformity more than ever. And in making that demand, we are seeing unprecedented restrictions on freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. That's why I wrote the book, Christians in a Cancel Culture, because you're right. We don't want to be silent, and we don't want to lose relationships, and we don't want to make trouble. We are relational. We don't, we don't become non-relational just because we become Christians. We'd rather get along than not get along, but 
we are being forced in many cases to choose between the comfort of getting along or the discomfort, but ultimately the rightness of holding to the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's when we got to take a cue from Peter and John. Sorry, guys, we ought to obey God rather than men. I mean, what else are we going to do? That's right. That's so well said. You know, in in your book, and I'm, I'm not quite quoting, but I think I'm coming pretty close to quoting. I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit. You you kind of summarize that concern that you're getting at right now when you say, you know, how do you deal with the the mainstream culture calling you bigoted for Christian for rejecting views that they've deemed self-evident? So, yeah. So, so th- that how do you and, and that that's again this format doesn't isn't suited for this because that's a that's a two or three hour answer that might be a two day answer if you were to answer answer thoroughly. But but how do we love while also, and you talk a lot about this, prior to this book, you've talked a lot about this. How do we love as Christians to love is to hold on to absolute truth, this exclusive truth that you talked about earlier, but how do we communicate it in love without compromising, without folding, without well, without becoming woke? Right, right. Well, I think we can respond and we can reason and we can relate. We can respond with a truthful answer. I'm to say, you know, I've got a friend or a loved one or a co-worker who says, do you believe in a woman's right to have an abortion? And my response is just stating my position. My position is I believe life within the womb is life within the womb. I certainly believe in a woman's right to choose when it comes to her own body, but I believe that the life within her is a separate life and she does not have the right to terminate that life. That's my position, so I can respond. Then I can reason with somebody, oh, Joe, you're such a misogynist, you're anti-choice, you're anti-woman, you want women to go back to having back alley abortions. That's when I try to reason with someone who's and say, well, now, wait a minute, if I have a different position than you, doesn't that only mean we disagree? Don't you disapprove of something? Well, of course I do. Do you hate the people you disapprove of or disagree with? No, I don't hate them, I just disagree with them. Thank you, I couldn't have said it better than, than you just did. You can try to reason with people. That's mm. what Paul did in the synagogues, reasoning with people, yeah. you know? And you try to relate. That is to basically say, I don't want to just win an argument with you. I want to sustain our relationship without either of us having to sacrifice our independence or our consciousness. Are we both adult enough and fair-minded enough to do that? Mm. Now, does that mean you're going to get the desired outcome? No. There are people who are going to walk away no matter what we do. And John, I think that one of the errors that a lot of Christians are falling for is the error of thinking that if people walk away from us, if they reject us, if they call us bigoted, that must mean we're doing something wrong. Well, no, it doesn't. Now, we can always use some self-examination. I could always do a better job of speaking truth responsibly. But the fact that someone rejects me, even if they hatefully cut off my relationship or accuse me, doesn't necessarily mean I'm doing something wrong. My job is to be as clear as I can and as respectful as I can. And to try to reason with people, to try to reach them, to try to first and foremost share the gospel plainly so the people who do not know Christ will come to know him. And secondly, try to give the full counsel of God on critical issues. If having done all of that, I'm rejected, then so be it. I don't like that, but I think that this is exactly what Paul said would happen. The time has come when people will not endure sound doctrine. It's not tolerated. We're seeing it now. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we have to accept that as a part of Christian life in the year 2022. We can speak out against it, and we should. We can try to reason with people, and we should. And the good news in all of this is, come on, the Holy Spirit is still alive. If we are preaching the Word of God, and the Spirit of God still confirms the Word of God, people are still going to come to Christ. We can still disciple people. There will always be that remnant. So, yeah, you've got the Pharisees that hate Jesus as a group. They're, they're lethally hostile. But then you got out of the bunch of Nicodemus who comes to him by night and says, hey, I've got some questions. Mm-hmm. So, you know what? It's, th- there will always be that remnant. And, and I think for us as Christian Americans especially, this is a hard position to get used to because our tradition as Americans has been one in which the church and the culture had a friendly, respectful relationship, even if the culture didn't agree with the church. That's right. So it was largely influenced by the church. That's exactly this is right. new territory for us. We're not used to that hostility. I think that's where, like you were talking about Christians in Rome, they can teach us a thing or two about not getting too shook up over the fact that people don't like us. It happens. Well, that's right. And you know, the American way, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. From birth, we're raised to appreciate winning more than we lose. And you called this the narrow way. You're using biblical language. And yet that sin of self-reliance, self-sufficiency is tempting for me, even when I'm doing good, even when I'm doing the right thing, I kind of fall for this accountability for results rather than recognizing in that conversation you just described, sometimes I am planting a seed or watering a seed or continuing a process that God is going to use in the life of another believer or another person. Uh, John, you, you are bringing up such an important point in this. We gotta rethink this whole idea of running the race. What is exactly. it we are trying to do? Yes, I want results. I want results as much as anybody else. You bet I do. But running the race is about eternal results. It's not that we sacrifice the idea of achieving a goal. It's that we revise our thinking about what the goal ultimately is. I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I will give an account for how I have stewarded what he has entrusted me with. It is not the earthly results that he's going to be looking for. If that was the case, what are you going to say about all the prophets that were put to death and all the early believers, not to mention most of the apostles who died martyr deaths? Are we going to say they all failed? Of course not. That's right. So the reward is for faithfulness. Have I been a faithful, responsible steward? And that's where I say, if I'm running my race properly, I keep that goal in mind. Otherwise, first of all, I'm going to start looking more for the temporal than the eternal. And secondly, I'm going to go nuts. I mean, if if we're really sitting around waiting for our country to become some kind of Christian nation and everything to turn around and get nice, we're going to go nuts, man. This is a time of opposition and hostility. I'm not trying to predict anything. I don't know whether or not it's too late for America. I'm just saying you're going to go nuts if you're going to sit around waiting for earthly results. Exactly. When you're when you're sowing heavenly seed, you're looking for eternal results. Well, not to mention, you know, as you're talking, I'm again thinking we are finite creatures. We struggle with time, don't we? We don't think eternally. We we don't even think eternally with an eternal perspective with people we encounter on earth. I even struggle, for example, and I'm sure you do too, and pretty much everybody does, to know what happened to my time last week. It seems to have flown by. Got that's that the, right. That's the cliche. And so we really have a, a hard time thinking eternally. I, I, I think we're, we're very finite people. And 
I think that's just important to keep in mind as we live out this walk by faith. Now, Joe, you mentioned a couple of times, you mentioned the church, and I, I try to I try to be gracious on this podcast when I talk about the evangelical church at large. Our mutual friend Hank Hanegraaff has taught me to speak in terms of the essentials of the faith. And so uh-huh. as I teach on various topics, I try to focus on those essentials. But as I look at the church, and as I hear your story, even after your story and chronological progression, I think the church has less and less over the years engaged in the lives of its people. And by that, I mean um, ignored sexual sin at large, not known how to address the gay community, as you described it earlier, but even struggled to engage the congregation on matters like guilt and sin in our lives. As a, It's just kind of a, even expository preachers at the church at large have kind of avoided that, sort of kicked that can down the road, and the church hasn't really always engaged as well as it could. Do you see that in the community at large? Do you see that the church is a huge part of the challenge that you're addressing in your book? Oh, yeah. Look, John, I think you just just did a very good job explaining the situation and the right attitude to take towards it. Because, you know, I can't say anything about the church and be accurate because you can't you can't make any one statement about the church and say <laughs> this applies to all believers. Of is, course is, not. Isn't, I mean, isn't that the truth? I think, yeah, I think that's why we've got a number of different letters written to the churches in the book of Revelation, because different churches had different situations. Some were doing very well, some were doing horribly, and some were somewhere in between. And I think that's true of the church at large. But that said, I think that we could, in general, do worse than to go back to the basics that we see in the book of Acts. Two things they did then that I don't think we are doing nearly enough of now in the modern church. They studied the word together regularly, and they worked together regularly. They interacted with each other. They were involved in each other's lives. They continued daily in prayer and in the apostles' doctrine and, and in fellowship and breaking the bread. There was a deep investment in the word of God, and there was a deep investment in each other. I think we have largely fallen away from investing in study of the scripture, which is why every time Barna comes out with a new book, I don't want to read it. It's mm-hmm. not good news. You know, statistically, the number of people, the number of Christians he surveys who show such blatant ignorance of the Bible is very discouraging. When I was first saved, I was taught one of the most important things you do. You study the Word regularly. You cannot grow any other way. That's right. And I think that when we get back to that, we will have a healthier church. I've often said, John, that the church... The believer without biblical discernment is like the body without a healthy immune system. That's the terrible thing about AIDS. When your immune system is broken down, you're susceptible to diseases you wouldn't otherwise be susceptible to. Right. When your biblical discernment, your working knowledge of the Bible is, is not there, you are susceptible to errors you would not otherwise be susceptible to. So on that area, I think we we really need to repent and become more of a people committed to the study of the Word, and we need to become a people more committed to each other. I think that if we had the level of interaction we need to have, if we had had that from the beginning, it's entirely possible that organizations like Exodus International might never have needed to to happen. 
because so often people fled to Exodus ministries because within their own churches, they did not feel they could be open about their own struggles in their own lives. Now, I think there will always be a need for some kind of parachurch work. I'm, I'm all for that. But it's a supplement. It's not meant to be the main meal. Right. I'm all for protein powder and vitamin B and vitamin C. Take those vitamins and take those supplements if you need them. But never uh, replace a balanced meal for supplements. Use the supplements in addition to the balanced meal. That's where you get your main strength. And the same is true of the local church. I really feel we need to be not only more invested in our local churches, but more committed to them, too. This is an age where we bail on each other pretty quickly. I mean, I, I think that people church hop very easily, leave a church yep. for reasons that are so often not valid. And as a result, they don't lay down roots with one particular body, and they don't get to know and invest in other believers, and they don't grow as they could. There's such a benefit to be had from laying down roots and growing at a local church. Now, of course, if your local church goes off the deep end doctrinally, get the heck out of there. Exactly. If your local right. church is, is blatantly carnal and in serious error, no, go, don't stay. But I think in most cases, we're, it, it's, I guess the times, again, we, we call somebody our friend because we click their like button. That's, That's right. not friendship. That's <laughs> so right. I think we've got very shallow ideas of what a relationship is supposed to be. So for those two reasons, I think that, yes, the state of the modern church largely is one that is very weakened. And if we're not up for the challenges of the time, we're not going to be able to fulfill our job description. And like I said earlier, the gospel isn't going to die. The word of God isn't going to die. The spirit of God isn't going to die. But I want to be a part of what God is doing. I don't want to default to my own immaturity and just watch the work of God. I want to be a part of it. So I think to be a part of it, we've got to rise to whatever challenges God has placed it in front of us. And this whole cancel culture challenge definitely one of them. Well, I got to tell you, I struggle with something, and I'm going to say this really clumsily because I didn't plan to ask you this, but you just raised this issue, and, and it's this. I had this period where, and this for me happened in the, 20 to 30 year ago range. Uh, we are almost the same age. You've got me by a few years, but not many. And I remember recognizing that the reason for all those doubts that I had was, was that I wasn't grounded in the word. I had listened to evangelical ease an awful lot and had been at a good church and heard good teaching with respect, with due respect to uh, several pastors over the years. I don't know that it was their fault, but I hadn't really studied the Bible in the context of Scripture, uh, you know, one Scripture in the context with all others, and I hadn't, I hadn't, and, and and I found myself in a church that was pastored by R.C. Sproul of all people, a, theolo Whoa. a theologian. I ended up hanging out with some theologians who are really good people, really know a lot of Scripture, uh, have a lot of depth, but I developed a fear of failure, a fear. It was a fear of not belonging. I'm going to sound stupid if I talk about this because those guys all have lots of initials after their name. My, my credentials, oh, are, yeah. my credentials are all in business. What if I damage someone as I talk about this? And then you introduce this whole culture war that you mentioned, this critical race. I did a couple of episodes recently on critical race theory and, and took a, a view that is very similar to what you're articulating today about our culture. And even with that, I fear, you know, am I going to 
violate the spiritual Hippocratic oath and do harm mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, un- mm-hmm. unintentionally. Yeah. Talk about that just for a second, because the blessing in First of all, Joe, you are you are smooth when you talk about this. You've talked about it a lot. You think it through. You plan your even your podcast episodes are very well planned and purposeful. Your Facebook lives are are very well done, as are your books. So I know you don't come off without some thought. You're a deep thinker. You're you're even obsessive at times when you latch on to a subject because you want to explain it so well. But how do you get past? How do you help the average person get past the I'm no Joe Dallas. How how do I do this? How do I engage the culture at my church? Maybe you're, we're talking to pastors of very small churches who have the right heart and maybe the right biblical knowledge, but a fear of failure in this regard. Is there anything you could say that would maybe be encouraging to that group? Sure. I mean, I'll tell you what's not encouraging. I don't believe we ever really get past the fear of failure. Maybe we're not supposed <laughs> I, I to. Totally, I, I totally point. agree with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, how do you ever approach something like this, speaking, you know, the, the, the truth, teaching people, discipling, whatever, and not have some at least healthy fear of the, the, the gravity of what you're doing? You don't want to mess it up. There is also the neurotic fear of failure, which I have in stage because I've spent my life thinking Joe Dallas is a failure. And one of my greatest fears is that I will find out one day it was true all along and I was just stupid and Everybody was telling me I was okay, but I really wasn't. You know, uh, all I, that type of thing. I, I mean, it's all there. It's I can there. I can relate. Yeah. In fact, you, um, ever, you ever have a, I, you ever have a dream where you fail at something? Like you're trying to find. You ever have the one where you're you're trying to find your college class, and you haven't been in the class, and you're scared to death because you got to take a final and all of that. Oh, that's so funny you say that. Now, mine is just a little different. My fear is that I'm set to teach a workshop. And it's somewhere in the city, and I'm supposed to get on a bus to get there, and I never find the bus, and everybody's mad at me. <laughs> that's exactly. That's very <laughs> Then there's the other one that's not so nice, where I all of a sudden find myself naked in the middle of a shopping mall, and I'm running for cover. But You, know, you, you, didn't, you, didn't, didn't, need, you, you didn't, didn't have to go there. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, just, yeah, we just woke the audience. Yeah. We just woke the audience up. That's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, I think that... I almost feel like, well, God forbid we ever completely get over that. The, the, the clay vessel better remember it's a clay vessel, but oh, so it's true. a big one. We've got to be willing to step out because Christianity without communication is not Christianity. Yep. And you God God used the foolishness. God uses the foolishness of teaching and preaching from humans. And so you're absolutely right. Absolutely. And you know what? I, I mean, I don't assume that Peter always got it right. We know a couple of times he really blew it. But I mean, even when he was at his best, does that mean it was smooth and eloquent and perfect? No, I don't think it was with anyone. Not Paul, not James, not John. Nobody. Yeah. That's not the point. I think the point is, at least, though, let's be responsible. To right. me, the ABC is accurate, biblical, clear. Yeah. Do I know what I'm talking about? Is it at least accurate? I mean, come on, we can all get our facts straight, okay? If I don't know something, I need to admit I don't know it. But what I do know, I want to try to express and be accurate about it, you know? I want to make it biblical as it doctrinally sounds. Now, all of us can read the Bible. I often say, John, I am not a literary expert, but I know A Tale of Two Cities because I have read it countless times. I read it every few years. Apart from the Bible, that is my favorite reading. 
Charles Dickens A Tale of Two Cities. I yep. don't know why, but it did. Yep. Point is, I know that book backwards and forwards. <clears throat> I am not an expert on Dickens. I'm not an expert on the French Revolution. But I'm an expert on that book only because I've read it so many times. So if you tell me, for example, that Madame Defarge ran a daycare center, I'm going to go, ah, no. I know <laughs> enough about that book to know that lady didn't run no daycare center. Okay? Yep. Because I know the book. I don't have to be an expert in literature to know that. The right. same with the Bible. We can all read it. Yes, some of it is difficult. Most of it is accessible. There is no excuse for not being a student of the Word. Make sure what you're saying is biblical. And then let's be clear. I, you know, clear doesn't mean brilliant. It means that if I spoke, you should be able to walk away from the conversation and know what I said. Now, the early believers, the early apostles, the disciples, hey, you might not have liked what Peter said or John said or Paul said. You might not have liked it. But nobody, I don't believe anybody walked away from those sermons we read in the book of Acts wondering what the person said. That's right. I think you'd walk away knowing what that person's main points were. Now, all of us can do this, John. I don't care how educated or uneducated we are. We can be accurate. We can get our facts straight. We can be biblical by knowing the word, and we can be clear. And it requires, that, requires effort, I'd say we did it? well. It requires effort. requires yeah, study. You, sure. Sure. It's a decision we make, I will or I won't. Just like everything, everything we've ever done that's worthwhile yeah. required effort and discipline, and it required saying no to some things and yes to others, and that's, you know, that's life, isn't it? Well, so well said. I want to ask you about something that actually I, I planned on asking you about, and then early in this conversation, you mentioned people who are struggling. And Joe, I, I want to word this correctly and carefully and sensitively to people in this audience who might be. It's it's kind of shocking. Sometimes I see in Christian schools this desire to, uh, I see it in churches as well, this desire to ensure that people don't fall away, that students don't experience what you just described earlier, where they go off to college and come back a different person, whether it's, whether it's sexually or spiritually or both. And Sometimes I think we we think, well, let's take one of the students that was the model student that didn't do that, and let's reverse engineer them. <laughs> let's see what all the inputs were. And life doesn't work that way. The Bible doesn't work that way. God's work in our hearts and lives doesn't work in a in a mechanical way. Sure, there are some best practices, but you, Joe, have experience at this, and you can speak to those who are struggling, who are struggling privately. And you do this all the time and you're really, you do it eloquently and you probably take for granted the impact of Joe Dallas talking about this subject. But I, I wouldn't want to end this discussion without asking you to talk to those students or those young people or those adults and whether it's homosexual sin or heterosexual sin, whatever quote-unquote secret sin that I can't come forward with and I'm really struggling with it and I'm gonna I'm at that point that Joe said he was at where it's eating me up it won't let me go what would you say to those folks in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything else we've talked about here I would say you are in that lonely place where you're believing three primary lies. I have believed them. I have been there. I spent years in that place. The first lie I believed was that there would be no consequence. 
If I privately used porn, if I privately hooked up, if I privately gave it, if I privately entertained it, it's not going to get out of hand. It will not affect anybody else. I will get by with it. I'll be forgiven, so there will be no problem. That was the first lie I believed. The second lie I believed was that see, it wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe my private sexual dark world that I was exploring more and more was not such an offense. I was not causing anybody's death. I wasn't robbing anyone. It wasn't that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. And, and the third lie, I believe, which I'll bet, I'll bet if you're one of those people who John just described, you're believing this one. I bet the farm you're believing this is that nobody would understand that you're keeping this to yourself. You don't want to be humiliated and you don't want to be rejected and you don't want to be talked down to either. I've always said I'd rather be persecuted than condescended to. I hate being patronized. So, I, I mean, you probably feel you have good reasons for keeping this a secret. Here's the problem. At the risk of sounding like Dr. Phil, it isn't working for you, is it? I mean, uh, it's, it's not getting you the desired result. I think you know that. And I think that your only choice ultimately is going to be to dare to believe that you have believed lies about the thing itself, which I think by now you'd have to admit it's, it's, it's proving not to deliver what it promised. So you might as well challenge that last lie, which is that nobody will understand, is you will take the step to talk with a pastor, a trusted friend, a Christian counselor, bring to light what you are afraid of being humiliated about. You are going to be in almost certainly for a wonderful surprise. I'm not saying it's going to go perfectly. I know that. I am saying that you are probably underestimating the ability of people to understand your experience because in your own head, You've inflated its seriousness. You've inflated its freakishness even. If you will dare to bring to light what you are afraid to be humiliated over, I think you're going to find that you have spent probably years fearing something that's not going to happen. Mm. So I hope that you'll take to heart the fact that if you are living in that dark place where you're keeping this perpetually hidden, it's not working. I have been decades doing it. I understand all the reasons for doing it, but I've come to realize there are much better reasons for not doing it. I hope you take that to heart. That is so well said. I, I really like the way you talked about three lies, and there, there's so much new nuance in everything you just said, Joe. For those who want to follow your ministry, who want to know what you're up to. I know your website, you have one website called uh, Joe Dallas, spelled just like the uh, city, Joe Dallas. Joe Dallas.com. That's the best way to reach me. If somebody wants to, I'm, I'm either available for appointments. I do Zoom, Skype, or in person if they're in Southern California. And if they want to sign up for my podcast, uh, also just go to Joe Dallas.com and uh, uh, they want more information about us uh, and our services. That's where you find me, just my name.com. And I hope our audience will support you, support your ministry, and we'll go and learn more about you. For those who didn't know, I know their interest is peaked. I really can't thank you enough for coming on and being so generous with your time. And I know this is going to be valuable to this uh, Relentless Truth audience. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure, John. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for this work. It is great getting to talk with you. Well, it's always my pleasure. So, folks, if you would, go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to 
Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcast. A special thank you to my guest, Joe Dallas. I hope you'll find him at joedallas.com and enjoy and appreciate his ministry. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.